Thanks, Steve. Apparently, I'm already high maintenance. Uh, hey, good morning. Uh, welcome to First Baptist Church. It is so good to be here bringing the word this morning. Steve, thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, there are few people who have uh, poured more time and energy and love and grace into guys like me who came through First Baptist Church than Stephen Lee and Carlson, and so forever indebted to their influence in our life, uh, and that's on behalf of both me and my wife and countless others. And uh, Angela, thanks for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, it's great to sit under your leadership here. Um, yeah, so my name is Shane. I know about half of you in here. Uh, half of you I don't recognize. That's a good thing, not because um, I don't want to know you, which would be a really inappropriate way for me to start off uh, and introduce myself, but because that means the church has grown and new life has come in, and so I'm excited for that and for this church. Um, yeah, I've been gone for 12 years, uh, and if, uh, um, yeah, we haven't met, like Steve said, I was associate pastor here for five years before moving to Ames in 2010. We only had two kids at the time. Uh, we came home with nine, and so um, it is what it is. It's a little overwhelming at times, but I love each and every one of you children. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we moved back earlier this summer. I've been enjoying getting to know JT a little bit, and uh, um, I'm so glad that he has an opportunity to uh, get away. Uh, 33 months he's been in the pulpit here, the only break being with his injured back, and so uh, that man has earned some time off, and you're stuck with me for two weeks. So, guys, the last 17 years of call in my life has been vocational ministry. I love being a pastor. I believe God made me to be a pastor um, and to dispel any rumors. There was no scandal or anything surrounding my departure from Cornerstone. I love our Cornerstone Church family. The hardest goodbye uh, we have uh, had, and uh, um, in fact, just this morning I was texting, so our lead pastor down there is a really good friend of mine, today's his 40th birthday, so I was texting him this morning and said, welcome to the old man's club uh, that I joined just a month ago. Um, but yeah, we're, uh, um, there's a lot more details to our story, but we, we simply felt like it was time for us to move close to family. Uh, we were born and raised, well, I was born and raised in Iowa. My wife was born in Haiti, uh, but made her way to Iowa. Uh, Sharon Rich is her, uh, um, her mom and Tom, her stepdad. And, uh, and so we're, we're coming home to northeast Iowa here. Um, yeah, there's a lot to our story. I love coffee, so if any of you want to hear more of our story, I'm happy to drink coffee with you and talk about it some more. But this morning, we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about a guy named Jesus. He's a far more worthy subject. And so why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 8. As my hope is that for at least a few in this room, maybe many in this room, but at least a few, that perhaps this morning could actually be one of the more like liberating junctures in your life. Okay? I know it's a Bible-believing church. The gospel is preached faithfully here, um, and yet I know many in here uh, struggled, probably like I have struggled for the vast majority of my life with, um, well, this sense of disapp- that, that God is perhaps disappointed in me. 
that I'm not living up to a standard that he has set for my life. And so we're going to we're going to uh, talk about that, dive into that a little bit, and I believe it is an essential yet often overlooked aspect of the gospel. So I'm just going to pray that the Lord would breathe life and joy and freedom and would make Jesus all the more treasured in your life here this morning. So join me to that end. Lord, thank you so much for being uh, the good God that we just sang about who paid the highest of price for our redemption. And so we're here to talk about you. We're here to uh, give glory and honor to your name. You're the one who's worthy of it. And so, Lord, would you captivate our hearts and our minds here this morning in such a way that would lead to um, just greater affections for you. Lord, you're simply the best. You are so good. And, Lord, we, uh, we're here to worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, and we're going to be in these verses the next two weeks, and so we're not going to get very far here this morning, Um, so don't hold me to, you didn't teach the whole passage there, we're just covering a few verses, but I'm going to read the whole thing here, so Romans 8, 1, it says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those to live according to the Spirit, have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. Do you ever feel like a disappointment to God? Do you ever feel like a disappointment to God? You know, like you, you believe the gospel. You, you have placed your trust in Jesus at some point in your life. I hope you have. You believe that he lived, he died, he rose again for your redemption, and that he's your only hope in this life and in the life to come. You do your best to read his word, to pray faithfully at least before meals and bedtimes and maybe occasionally when you're driving along the road alone in your vehicle. You give a little money to the church and other charitable causes. You serve here and there and you try to be friendly to those around you. And by most standards, you measure up. At least those around you think you do. Oh, so-and-so, he's a nice guy. She's a nice lady. But at the end of the day, you're the one that's left with your thoughts. You're the one 
Who knows the argument that you had with your spouse behind closed doors, the way that you treated her poorly, the way you were quick to lash out at one of your children because they didn't do something that you asked, or really they were just getting on your nerves. Ultimately, you're the one that is left with every action, every thought, every motive, every careless word. And if you wrestle with the question, is God pleased with me? If we're sober-minded and honest, that answer has to be a resounding no. He's not pleased with me. Yes, I'm a Christian. My trust is in Jesus. My eternity is secure. But there is no way that a holy God, perfect in all his ways, set apart from me, could possibly be pleased with me. In other words, I have to be a perpetual disappointment to God. If that's you this morning, the Apostle Paul has some very encouraging news for us. Romans chapter 8 starts with one of the more well-known and profound and hope-filled statements in all of the New Testament. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation, no condemning words or accusations towards those who are in Christ. No, you're a disappointment to God. No, God is not pleased with you type of statements. No, wow, I thought you were a Christian. That's not how Christians are supposed to act or think. None of those, none of those condemning statements are found for those who are in Christ. At least that's the claim that Paul is making right now. Now, That's a bold statement. It's a bold statement considering our awareness of just how far we fall short of God's standard, of just how much of a disappointment we are to ourselves and those around us, how much more would a God who's all-knowing, that sees every thought, knows every action, knows every word that we've ever spoken, and all the words that we thought but didn't speak, how much more disappointed must he be in us? Guys, it's a bold statement that Paul makes, and it's one that really does seem impossible to believe when I consider the wretched man that I am. I mean, on the outside, a lot of people would say Shane's a good guy. But when I search the depths of my own motives for essentially everything I do or everything I have ever done, no matter how noble my actions may seem or appear, there's always some sort of self-centered motive that is lurking behind it. Ultimately, I am the center of my universe. Or perhaps more accurately, I think and act like I am at the center of God's universe. And the truth is, God will not yield his rightful place at the center of all things to anyone or anything. Therefore, he has to be disappointed with me. Well, fortunately, those are, those are my feelings, but I'm not, I'm not alone in that because apparently the Apostle Paul had very similar feelings. Apparently, he struggled with the same thing. You see, the passage that we just read began with the word, therefore, and for us to be good, faithful Bible students, anytime we see the word, therefore, 
We've got to ask the question, what is the therefore? Therefore, good job. <laughs> what is the therefore, therefore? Well, Paul just came off of a rant in Romans chapter 7 where he appears to be wrestling with some of the exact same things that I just shared for you. In fact, consider some of these verses in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. It says, I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Paul's conclusion, verse 24, what a wretched man am I? That's Paul's capstone statement on the assessment of his life. What a wretched man am I? I don't know about you, but those sound like awfully condemning words. What a wretched man am I? In fact, the Greek word that he uses there means I'm miserable and suffering. I am a man who is miserable and suffering because of the colossal disappointment that I have. Yet, just two verses later from Paul's capstone statement on his life, what a wretched man am I, he'll issue this statement. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So we go from what a wretched man am I, miserable and suffering because I don't do the things that I should do and I consistently do the things that I know I shouldn't do. He goes from that to there's now no condemnation. Guys, and there's only one modifying statement in between those two verses. It poses the question, who will rescue me from this body of death and concludes with this exclamatory statement of gratitude, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, from wretched to no condemnation. Through Jesus Christ. In verse 2 of Romans 8, the text that we read, says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to draw this out for you. Here's, here's how I picture this, what, what's going on there, how, what, what Paul is talking about, the relationship between the law and the flesh and the Spirit and Jesus. Okay? So um, <clears throat> when he's talking about the law, we're kind of essentially uh, talking about the 600-plus commands of the Old Testament that are summarized by the, the Ten Commandments, right? You've got, you know, have no other gods before me. Don't make it for yourself an idol. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Honor father and mother. Don't, 
commit murder, adultery, steal, lie, covet, right? So summary of God's perfect standard. And we've got the law here. And here is what um, those of us who are under the law, which is everybody, those of us under the law, what the law has revealed in us, mankind, okay, who are under the law, is that we are sinful, right? It just means that we fall terribly short of that perfect standard that God has set for us, right? You just walk through some of those Ten Commandments. We know how we're constantly making idols for ourselves. We're continually using the Lord's name in vain. We're continually dishonoring our father and mother. We lie, we steal, we cheat, we look lustfully upon others. We blaspheme, we, all of the above, right? And this is what the law has revealed in us, mankind, that we're sinful. But simultaneously, and that was the role of the law, was to reveal that in us, to reveal just how far we short. But it's not the only purpose of the law, because someone else is under the law. His name is Jesus. And what the law revealed in Jesus was that he was righteous, right? That he unlike us, perfectly obeyed, perfectly upheld the righteous standard of the law. And the law didn't make Jesus righteous, but it revealed what what he is, that he is righteous, perfect in all of his ways. Now, most of us have grown up in church hearing, for those of us who have grown up in church and have heard the gospel consistently, we learn this incredible truth, and it's what the Apostle Paul calls in Romans chapter, or in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as the thing of most importance, and it is this, that Jesus died on a cross, and because of that, our sin was placed on him once and for all, and the punishment paid for our sin on that cross 2,000 years ago, right? And so we, the law reveals in us our sinfulness, our sinfulness is imputed to Jesus, is placed on Jesus, and on that cross, he absorbs the wrath of God in our place, and we are free from it, which is an incredible truth, right? It's the greatest truth in all of the world. I hope that you believe that it's the greatest truth in all of the world, and it's one that most of us in here are not unfamiliar with. What is the gospel? Jesus died for my sins, right? However, it doesn't actually capture fully what happened on this cross. Because you see, there's a transaction of sorts that is happening where not only was our sinful nature placed on Jesus, where he would absorb the full wrath of God on the cross, but a second exchange happened where the righteousness of Christ, the perfect obedience, Jesus always honoring his father and mother, Jesus always speaking the truth. Jesus never looking lustfully upon another person. Jesus never coveting. Jesus doing everything that he is supposed to do gets placed on us. It is the most ridiculous transaction in the history of the universe. Our sin for his righteousness. Theologians call this double imputation. Our sin imputed to Jesus, Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. But this is where it gets really crazy because we just talked about all of the ways that I'm prone to 
condemn myself or we are prone to condemn ourselves or we are even prone to condemn each other is that when it seems like we have to be a disappointment to God, even if we've trusted in Jesus and our sin has been paid for, but we go on, we're left with our thoughts, we're left with our actions, we know we fall short. And you start to hear that little voice, it's like, yes, you're with Jesus, but you are a disappointment to the Father. This truth changes all of that. Because when on that cross, Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us, now all of a sudden, God chooses to view us not through the lens of our obedience, not through the lens of our disobedience, but through the lens of Jesus' perfect righteousness. And guys, that is the greatest truth. It's the most liberating truth in all of the world. Our sins paid for, and we are granted a garment of righteousness where God chooses to view us once and for all through the perfect obedience of his son. As it is crazy, it is an absolutely crazy truth. Guys, I became a Christian when I was six years old. My mom came in to say bedtime prayers with me, and I asked her, how do you ask Jesus into your heart? And my mom explained to me in a way that a six-year-old could perhaps best understand uh, what it meant to trust in Jesus. And I became a Christian then. And I'd walk with Jesus for the next 25 years. And I would believe that Jesus was my only hope in this life and the next. But I also was stuck with the reality of my sin, thinking, what fruit is there really of my salvation? What fruit do I have that actually would cause me to have some sort of a claim on the eternity that was promised? What fruit is there in my life that says I actually do believe the things that I say that I believe? Because again, even if on the outside it looked like I was living or am living in a way that is honorable, I still know deep inside there's these motives. (laughs) There's always an angle. There's always something. I'm like, well, yeah, I know I'm doing the right thing, but it's like, maybe I'm going to get something out of it, or maybe you can manipulate people in this way, or maybe I can somehow get glory for myself in this way, or achieve comfort, or whatever it is. There's always some idol lurking behind the motivations of the things that I do. And so for 25 years, that characterized my walk with Jesus. Jesus died for my sins, and I'm probably a disappointment to God. And then I began to understand what Paul talks about through much of Romans, but particularly here in Romans 8. And it, it like, set me free. (laughs) It set me free to a joy, a life of joy in a way that I had never experienced before said, you mean, you mean God is always pleased with me? Always pleased with me. In my worst moments, God is always pleased with me. And it has literally nothing to do with anything that I do. 
or anything that I have ever done or anything that I could ever do, but simply because God has chosen to view me through the lens of his son, Jesus' perfect obedience. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You guys, you, you understand what it's like to, um, you've got kids, you, you understand what it's like to, to, to be a parent um, and, and to have an unconditional love for your children, right? Or at least we all say that. I love my, my children unconditionally. Guys, that's baloney. No, nobody really loves their children unconditionally. It's very conditional, okay? <laughs> but here, here's what I mean by that, okay? So love, we know love. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not proud, not rude, right? Like we know 1 Corinthians 13, a description of love, okay? If I loved my children unconditionally, then that would be my response to everything that they do, right? I would love them in a way that's patient and kind and doesn't envy, is not proud, is not rude, blah, 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 all that. And yet that's not me at all. And it's none of you also. <laughs> Just yesterday, I'm out, uh, so uh, we're in the middle of a house building project and it had been raining, so we need to sweep water off of our, the floor deck to keep the work site clean and out there. So I take all my kids out there. And I'm trying to explain to them how, like, if we all work together, we can, like, channel a big swath of water in a single direction and get it pushed out. And, guys, it was, like, just utter chaos. I mean, it's like kids running this way and this way and this way and this way. And, like, I'm just getting more and more exasperated by the moment. And I just end up being a jerk because that's what I am. That's my sin nature. And I get frustrated and I'm like, you go over there, and you go over there, and you sit over there, and you give me your squeegee, and blah, 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 right? And I, and I even know in the moment, like, this is one of those moments that I'm obviously going to have to apologize for later, right? You know, like, in the moment, you know, but I'm still I'm going to keep going, because that's what I do, right? We know what it's like to be parents who are disappointed in our children. And more often than not, that disappointment actually has very little to do with their character or a specific rebellion or some sort of sin nature. It more often has to do with my own sin nature. That I was horribly inconvenienced by the chaos that was taking place in front of me. What should have taken five minutes took 50. Right? But guys, God's not like that. He's not like that. Maybe that's why I, I feel like I, you know, I'm prone to, to get caught in that performance trap um, because I think God is like me. It's, that's not the way he is, though. Because his pleasure in his children has once and for all been secured by the perfect obedience of Jesus. It's, it's unreal. God's approval of me isn't rooted in my obedience. It's rooted in the obedience of Christ. The law could not make us righteous. All it did was show us that we fall short. But what the law did was exactly what it was intended to do, reveal our sin nature and reveal the perfect righteousness of Christ. And on that cross, the greatest exchange in the history of the world would happen, our sin for his righteousness. In fact, Paul talked about this a little more just a few chapters earlier in Romans chapter 5, 18 to 19, he says, So then, 
as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. He's talking about what happened in the garden. As Adam and Eve rebelled against God's holy command and took the fruit and original sin enters the world and it's passed on to every one of us throughout every generation, right? That trespass leads to condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, listen to this, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, some might conclude that understanding double imputation, this great exchange happening there, actually gives us freedom to sin without consequence. Doesn't that truth actually lead us to perhaps abuse the grace that has been given to us? That if Jesus has paid for my sins, and now regardless of what I do, God looks at me through the righteousness of Christ, then why can't I just do whatever I want to do? <laughs> right? Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever we want to do. Indulge in any pleasure that we can. Because at the end of the day, Jesus still, or God still looks at us through the righteousness of Christ. You guys, what I've found to be true in my life is the exact opposite. Because the more we contemplate the beauty of this reality, the more we want to walk with that Jesus. The more we want to know him. The more we see how glorious he is. The more we see how unfathomable the richness, the depths of his love is. The more we want to walk with him, the more we walk with him, the more we become like him. It's unavoidable. Those who have sat under the wrath of God, who have seen him in his holiness as described in his word, who sees pictures like Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock, who sees Isaiah falling on his face in Isaiah 6, who sees the prophet Ezekiel falling on his face before a holy God, who sees John seeing a picture of Jesus in his glory falling on his face as though dead. When you have seen that holy God and you're left alone with your thoughts and you're left alone with your own wretchedness as Paul describes it, and then you realize that that chasm could be bridged through Jesus' perfect obedience and through his horrific death, that's a God you want to know. That's a God you want to lean into, not run away from. That's a God who you begin to believe that his ways actually come from a place of what is in the best interest of his children. That his laws aren't arbitrary. His commands aren't simply because he can. But it's because he's crazy about his children. He loves his children so much. He loves his children unconditionally. It is not conditioned upon what you do or don't do. It is conditioned upon what Jesus has already done. And when you get to know that God, you want to walk with him, not away from him. But next week, we're going to look a little more at what it means to walk in the Spirit and how, okay, well, we get that God is pleased with us, but can we actually grow to be more like Jesus? Can we, what does it look like to grow in Christ-likeness, to overcome sin, to do real battle with sin? We're going to dive into that a little bit further. But today, I just want us to sit on this amazing truth that 
through Christ, God is pleased. The answer is yes. For those who have trusted in Jesus, God is pleased. The assurance of my salvation has nothing to do with me and everything to do with Christ. So, if you ever feel like you're a disappointment to God, the truth is, if you were at the center of the gospel, you would be. You'd be a colossal disappointment to God. But the best news about the gospel is that the person at the center, his name is Jesus. He became a disappointment to God so that you would forever experience his delight. So I want you to imagine being face first on the ground before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, helpless with tears of anguish and exasperation in your eyes, crying out, I am not worthy to be in your presence. And then imagine those nail-pierced and scarred hands reach down to you, and with a smile on his face, he says, I know. And that's why you're welcome here. Let's pray. Jesus, your grace is unfathomable. And all we can do is look to that bloodied cross, the perfect life that preceded it, the glorious resurrection came after, say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Our lives are yours. You're so good. You're worthy of our worship and our affections. We offer them up to you. And Lord, I pray that there would just be a a, a spirit in this room of humility, of people saying, I'm not worthy of you, God. My righteous acts, my good acts, they're rubbish. They're They don't amount to anything to improve my standing with you. In fact, that's offensive to you, God, when you have freely offered the righteousness of your son and the the, the punishment due us poured out on him on a cross so that we could be children in whom you delight now and forever. God, we say thank you.